Hey everybody, happy Sunday. Matt Halpern here with episode 17 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. On behalf of myself, Jordan Goodman, and Justin Goodman, we just want to say thanks so much for checking us out and giving this podcast a listen. If you've been with us for the past 17 weeks, you fucking rule. We truly appreciate the continued support and feedback, and we look forward to releasing more episodes for you. As always, I'd also love to give a shout out right here at the beginning to all the members in our Facebook group. The interaction that we see there is truly inspiring, and every week there's more and more great conversation. I've seen some of you really open up. I know some of you personally, and seeing you open up and share your vulnerabilities has been really, really rewarding. And for that, I give all of you a lot of credit. Keep it up and keep helping each other. If you're listening to this and you haven't checked out our Facebook group yet, we'd love for you to do so. You can join us over there on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. And feel free to jump right into the conversation, say hello, ask a question, or just chime in and check out what's happening there. I'd also like to take a second to thank Rode Microphones. Rode continue to support us each week and their products are the reason why you're hearing my voice right now. You can learn more about Rode's products, including their podcast microphones, right now at roadmic.com. That's R-O-D-E-M-I-C.com. Or you can check them out via their socials at roadmic. Now, on to episode 17. Our guest this week is the incredibly talented Mr. Jimmy Haha, also known as Jim Davies. Jimmy is the frontman and the main songwriter of the band Jimmy's Chicken Shack, which many of you may know very well, uh, the band Jarflies, and then his current acoustic project called Mend the Hollow. All of these musical projects are really, really great, and I've been quite a huge fan of Jimmy for a very, very long time. We're talking like 20 years or so, maybe even more. Um, Jimmy is also the creative director and publisher of Upstart Annapolis Magazine. In his words, Upstart is a quarterly publication that highlights the creative people and the businesses that make Annapolis such a rich and cultural city. From musicians to artists to community activists and champions of the arts, Upstart's goal is not just to shine a light on the great works of the art created in Annapolis and Maryland, but to go in depth about the people and the businesses behind all of it. Now, I personally think that's awesome because that's the exact same thing that we're aiming to do with these podcast episodes, especially as we bring on more guests. That's exactly what we want to do as well. We want to highlight their reasons, why they do what they do, the challenges they face, and how they've overcome to get where they are. Now, for Jimmy, as if, as if that wasn't enough, uh, he's also a partner and cooperative uh, of an Annapolis-based art gallery called Fin Art. Now, Jimmy talks about that in this episode, so I won't say too much about it. Um, I haven't been there yet. I was actually at the location that it used to be, and it was great. But this new sort of form of it seems like an amazing place to check out. So I'm hoping to get down there myself uh, in the coming weeks. So <clears throat> if you're in the area, check out Finn Art. Okay, lastly, before we get into this, I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciated this particular conversation. I know Jordan and Justin did too. Jimmy's wisdom is quite apparent, and it really shines through throughout the next hour or so. He's one of the most real people I've ever had the pleasure of conversing with, and I really think and I hope his advice and wisdom rub off on each and every one of you that are listening. It definitely made an impact on me. So without further ado, let's kick in to episode 17 right now. 
Jimmy Davies, a.k.a. Jimmy Haha, is here. Yes. Woo! <laughs> oh, Tyson, don't get too excited. That's right. Yeah, Tyson's, Tyson's doing good. He didn't freak out this time. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> Welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. So we're in Baltimore. What brings you to Baltimore tonight? I'm playing a show up at the Auto Bar. I'm playing an acoustic set with uh, the band To The Moon and another band called Lush Farm. Awesome. So I will be there. I'm very excited. Sweet. Uh, so as Matt had mentioned, you are someone that we all looked up to uh, as teenagers and, and even as we got older and uh, formed our own bands and our own businesses even. Um, you are someone that you've always seemed larger uh, than life to, to, I think, uh, people like me. And what was really, uh, I guess, what drew me to you, not only were you a, a local Baltimore musician, and I could look at you, just like in ways I could look at Matt, and be like, oh, he's doing it. Well, I can do it, too. Um, what was really cool about you, though, Jimmy, uh, not only were you probably one of the first that I was aware of that made it to an MTV and got played on the radio, et cetera, et cetera, but I'd see Foul Records, and I'd be like, oh, wait, this dude, he's doing some stuff, but I see Foul Records. What is that? When I dug into it, I was like, oh, that's something he started on his own. And I see that, how it connects to what you're doing now. It seems like you've always had this entrepreneurial spirit or tendency. And it's like, well, I'm just going to fucking do it myself because I want to share my art and expression with the world. Um, so it's really cool to see that that is a part of you 20 years ago and even currently today. Um, where did that come from? Do you know? Probably out of necessity. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I graduated high school and I moved out of my house and moved up to Annapolis and... And I was working shit jobs and just was like, well, I got to do something. And so, you know, we we would have five people living in a two bedroom apartment, waiting tables or busing tables and making, you know, 10 bucks in the afternoon. And at one point, uh, I remember my father, when I went home one day, he was like, well, you say you're going to do all this music stuff, but, uh, you know, what are you doing? And then six months later, I brought him an album, you know, a vinyl album. And so, you know, at one point of my friend Steve from high school, Steve Fisher, and he owns a, a Ruby Salon in Annapolis. He was like, hey, man, I started jamming with these guys, and then they're making a record in this studio, LSP um, studio in Annapolis, which is Les Lentz's place. And there was a bunch of punk bands that would you record there, like Spastic Rats and Iron Christ and all these really cool bands. It was in his mom's basement, and he had, like, egg carton walls, basically. So I, I was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll if do they, they need a singer, I'll you know give me some music and so the next basically he gave me a song and the next day I went in the studio and sang the lyrics that I wrote to it and that was kind of my audition and the band was called 10 times big and we played for five years and at the time I guess there wasn't really a lot of all original bands but I didn't have really any interest in playing cover songs and so you know we just played and played and kind of from that point on it was like I, I knew that I just yeah, I mean, I always knew I was, wanted to play and make, do artwork, but didn't really know how. And we just started kind of nailing away at it and getting gigs in, you know, D.C. and Baltimore and then eventually, you know, the East Coast. But it was always the kind of thing where you just kind of, you know, put your nose at the grindstone and just go, you know, and just start making stuff happen. <laughs> right. So, and, and we all can attest to it. We've grown up playing in bands, but... uh a very you know small minority of band members actually 
uh, have the instincts or even the skills or even just the, the courage to say, I'm actually going to uh, treat this as a business or perhaps even just apply business skills in order to share this with the world. Um, so, and I think to your credit, that seems like it's something more natural to you. Um, so foul records, right. tell us how that started. Well, so that was with Chicken Shack. Like with 10 Times Big, it's interesting because I didn't want to have anything to do with music business. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm the singer, I'm, I play guitar, and that's it. And eventually, uh, we had got a bass player named Lonnie Fisher. And Lonnie Fisher started Ultra World Raves, and he's, you know, he's huge in Baltimore as far as the you know, dance, you know, DJ music and festival stuff. So, you know, Lonnie was a great bass player and kind of worked his way into our band. And he was the guy who was actually started to manage our, uh, 10 times big. So I watched him, you know, he was booking our shows and stuff like that. And so when we broke up, Jimmy's Chicken Shack, we, I, we were, it was me and Jim McDonough, we were playing acoustic guitar. And then Jim Chaney, our drummer, was, who was our last drummer for 10 times big, ended up playing um, congas with us. And he was like, hey, man, I know, you know, we played a few gigs here and there opening for people and... And uh, then we, he said, I, I know a bass player, and he, he mentioned Che. And we went to Jim Cheney's mom's house and had our first practice. And during the practice, I was like, we're, we're going to get signed. And I'd, you know, I'd had five years in the early 80s, and, and, and like, I think we broke up in 91, maybe. I knew what was kind of how things rolled with you know, playing. I knew we could get gigs and stuff. But, but I, knew, I knew right when we started playing, I was like, this is, this is going to work. And they all thought I was nuts. And so... You know, right away, we, we were, um, Mark Straza, or Straz, he was the sound man for Almighty Senators for years. God rest his soul, he was amazing. And uh, he, he did a recording for us at Hound Sound in Baltimore, and it was the first six months that we had started playing together. And I was like, man, we got to get this stuff to, like, Ian Mackay or something and get on Discord. And our music wasn't really Discord kind of music. I mean, some of it could have been, but, but I was reading this article, and, and Ian said... Uh, if you're not from D.C. and you're not my friend, don't send me your record because I'm not going to fucking put it out. He's like, start your own label. And I was like, fuck it, all right, I'll fine. So I just drew up a little logo with a chicken head and, you know, because of the name of the band. And Lonnie Fisher actually came up with the name of the band. He was reading Malcolm X's biography, and he's like, oh, you, you guys have three guys named Jimmy. You always call weed chicken, so you should be called Jimmy's Chicken Shack. <laughs> and we were like, well, you can't forget that name. Mm -hmm. and it's completely ridiculous, so yeah. So that, that was how Foul Records started. It was purely to kind of make it appear like we were <laughs> something that we weren't or we were more successful than we weren't. And it kind of snowballed because once we started doing well, people wanted to put their record out with the, with the logo on it. You know what I mean? And then it, so it was like, okay, sure. And my first contract was with Julius Bloom, and it was made in crayon on construction paper. And it said that... that that we, that we were under contract until one party said, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. And then that was the end of the contract, if anybody ever did that. So, I mean, it was kind of corny, but... So, <laughs> I, I have a question for you. When, when you did start Foul, did you know that you would have to think about things like the label services, about distribution, about marketing, about all the None things of that it. now go into it? None so of it. It was purely just to put something on our record. So, when we sent it out, people, it had this appearance like... Oh, these guys are already doing something. So it was, it was like essentially like an emblem, <laughs> like a lo just a. It was a logo. Totally. I mean, it was a logo that eventually grew into other bands wanting to have that logo on their record just to be involved because we had a really cool scene at the time. Baltimore and Annapolis had we had this very kind of cooperative scene. 
and you know we would play with Kelly Bell Band or Almighty Senators and all these bands, and we started this thing called the Maryland Music Association (MMA), and it was. It was me and uh, Chris Keith, who was had E Flat Productions and was managing like Laughing Colors and a couple other bands. And we met while honestly I was making album covers or flyers at Office Depot because the only way you could really make cool things there was no Photoshop or any of that shit. So you, I would go with scissors and a bunch of sh paper and shit and and go in and cut things up and just camp out at Office Depot making flyers. And so we met there and then. And we started this Maryland Music Association, and we got a bunch of bands interested. And you know, John Allen was part of it. And we basically all these guys that were like, you know, let's pull our resources, and you know, we don't need to compete against each other. Let's join together. And because we all had different music, it was cool. We got to, every, you know, every show that we did together was a different sounding show. There was never a punk rock show. There was never a, a jam show. It was like a show of every kind of music you could hear. So anybody who went to the show really had an an interest in the whole night. And we all borrowed from each other's crowds that way. So, you know, it really ended up being a cool kind of climate for that. And that's what Foul Records grew out of, in a sense, is is that. And then, you know, once my manager um, got into the picture, and that that's a whole another story, um, but Richard Burgess, he's, he's now the CEO for AIM, which is the American Association for Independent Music up in New York, and it's a pretty big deal thing. But, uh, once he got involved, he was like, you know, we got to we can make this record label go. And, and then we partnered. It was me, Chris Keith and, and Richard. And we really kind of then started taking it seriously. And we got distribution deal through Red Eye. And, you know, I mean, at first we were just making cassette tapes, or at least I was. I mean, we made two cassette tapes and I convinced Lion Recording out in Virginia um, that they, they'd printed probably a couple thousand cassette tapes for us. And I was like, hey, man. You know, what if I, I know you can make CDs now? And what if we took our two CDs and put them on one, uh, two cassettes and put them on one CD? You know, I want to kind of do this for my record label thing, and but we don't have money, so can you front us that? And he's like, Yeah, I know you'll sell them. So that's kind of how the whole thing. So it it it, it was birthed out of a a very long kind of process, and and partially accidental and partially you know. It was meant to happen, kind of thing. So no, that's that's awesome. I mean, but eventually you did upstream, right? Or, or did you was foul an imprint to something else? No, we mostly just did our own bands, and then you know we and we would do distribution deals. We never we were never like an imprint label on another label. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Was Jimmy's Chicken Shack though signed to a, a separate label at some point, or was it always strictly foul? So no, we put out our first. We put out our. Two two albums or two CDs on Foul. Um, you know, the first two cassettes turned into uh, two for one special, and then we did a live CD called uh, "Giving Something Back," and so those were our two records. And we pretty much funded the whole label most of the time. The idea was it was a fifty fifty split deal. So if a band sells ten records, you know, typically on any record deal, especially an indie label, if you sell ten records, you're not getting a penny. But it was, we were adamant at the fact that if you, you sold five records, you're going to get your money for your five records. So not necessarily a great business plan as far as making money. It, it, and by the time that Chicken Shack got signed and, and right around the time we kind of disbanded the label, I, I think I was owed like $10,000 from the label because we made sure that you know bands like Mary Prankster and all these other bands that were selling handfuls of records would, were going to get paid yeah, what we said. So it was that kind of a thing. That's amazing. Especially, I mean, so having experience dealing with record labels, that's like 
typically the complete opposite right. of, <laughs> of yeah. what it's like. Um, but it just it goes back to, I think, you being a true artist and, and respecting the artist through this process and wanting to provide what seems like a platform for that artist or at least give them more of uh, of an anchor to something. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, you know the one thing, the key thing was that I loved the, the music that these people were making, you know, like Ruben from Swamp Candy was in a band called Fungo Batten. Or, I mean, there were so many bands that uh, like Underfoot and they're just bands that I loved and I'd go out and listen to. And so, and then I loved them as friends. And, you know, the whole idea was we can elevate this whole area together because typically national tours would skip over Baltimore. You know, they might go to DC, but our area was skipped over. And, and I think as, as far as national acclaim, you know, you would always hear about Seattle and, and stuff like that, but you never would hear about this area. And I'm like, this is some of the best music in the world that comes out of this area. I mean, Go-Go was originated in DC. Bad Brains, you know, Fugazi, all that stuff, Minor Threat. They, so though they had their scene, we just were part of a scene that I felt like kind of got ignored, especially like Almighty Senators was one of my favorite bands ever in my life, and they were phenomenal. And so I felt like all this stuff, if we pulled it, if we pulled all our resources together, we could kind of bust through and, and make somewhat of a, you know, make some waves. Or, and that was the idea with the label and, and the, you know, the Maryland Music Association was like power through, you know. Was there anything cohesive about these the group of bands that you brought together? And was there was there any rhyme or reason when it came to signing bands or, or being able to put them out on foul? Was it just something that you're my friends, I want to support you? I was think I think it's a little it was a little of both. I mean, I was friends with everybody who we ever did records for. And then as it grew, um, Chris Smoker came in and started working and actually was working out of my basement. Uh, well, he worked first, we had a little office, but but then eventually it was in, in my basement. And so we had a few people. We had a couple of interns and, and someone working full time. And then we started, dist uh, there was a new record out, uh, the first record out by this band called uh, OAR. And they, want, they saw what we were doing. They liked what we were doing. They wanted to kind of follow that, that game plan. So we started distributing their record. They weren't necessarily on our record label. And even, even bands that were on our record label, it was like, I don't know if it was ever really properly done. You know what I mean? It was always handshake kind of thing. I don't know if I ever signed a contract with anyone. It was just like, we're going to do this. And part of that became the downfall of it in a sense, too. So <laughs> I think it's cool that you've already touched on a bunch of points that we've explored and, and even encouraged over the past you know, four months of doing this podcast. Uh, even last week's episode, we, we came upon the, uh, the agreement of friends help friends, right? So it's about can you add value to a community in some way? And then kind of like all boats lift. Yeah. For you, I think you put yourself in a very nice position in that it seemed like you were just selflessly providing value to all these people, whether you realized it or not. I know you had your own uh, intentions of furthering your career. Sure. But it seems like you just have this natural uh, desire to help other people, put a spotlight on other people. You do this currently... Uh, with your magazine, even, and spotlighting mm. other artists. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's just purely, it's all based out of love, you know, or, or, or admiration. Like, there, people do good stuff, and, I, and if I dig it, I'm like, I want to turn people on to it, and it never, I don't care if it takes, I don't see how it would ever take away from my stuff, you know what I mean? As, I'm sure I have my own agenda, and I was like, you know, I want to get my band signed, and I want to do well and do all this stuff, but more than anything, it was like, 
I want people to know why this place is so badass, <laughs> you know, like why I fucking love Baltimore, why I love Annapolis and why I love this band or this artist or, you know, so it, it just seemed like a natural thing to do is to, be, you know, get on the rooftops and start shouting out, like, check this shit out kind of thing. <laughs> what I also found interesting, you said at the very start, you knew Jimmy's Chicken Shack would succeed. Yeah. How? I don't know. We just started playing, and it was a certain sound and an energy that was, it was different. I knew it was different, and I knew that, it, I mean, because it always went a little all over the place, but it was just good. And I mean, I'd been in a band for a while. We uh, ten times big almost got signed to a um, a lab, the label that the Orb was on. Uh, I forget the name of the label, but they you know they were a really cool band from from the UK, but. I just, I don't know. I just, we started playing. I was like, man, these, these are, this is good music. And, and if we do this right, it's going to go somewhere. So I think that's cool. At some sense, you had this intuition that it felt good or it felt right to you. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that maybe genre wise, you were all over the place. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on this podcast is that I know it's going to introduce you and your music to all kinds of people who may not have heard of you before. Uh, you are someone that I will still see perform live a few times a year. Uh, I love that you have all kinds of other projects, but you still are willing to do Jimmy's Chicken Shack and those songs. Oh, yeah. And it still holds up. What was so cool was that, you know, even 20 years later, you guys, I could describe the music as metal. I could describe it as funk. Uh, there is reggae influence. There's pop melodies to it. Uh, or I guess at the time, it was easy just to say alternative rock. Um, but I'm wondering... We called it Mutt Rock. Mutt Rock, fair enough. Right. <laughs> it was a mutt. <laughs> um, did it, once you, I, I guess, went to a bigger label and, and started getting more, you know, a national distribution and touring, uh, did you ever run into issues about finding your place in the music culture because of that? Because uh, I could see it being a, a good thing in that you stand out, but at the same time, like, packs of bands run together. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the music industry is not necessarily interested in music. <laughs> I mean, overall, I mean, there's people in the music industry who are interested in music, but inevitably it's, it becomes, you know, bean counters. And so, you know, like our first major label record, our first single was High, and that was, a, you know, a rock song. And some people lumped us in with metal bands because it was distorted and we had guitar solos and it was, a, you know, the video itself was pretty, you know, it was a mosh pit and everything. So people thought we were that kind of music. If they heard one song off that record, they could have, if they would have heard any other song off that record, they would have been like, what the fuck? That doesn't sound like this band. And so the problem, I, there's a, I think there's two things. I think it gives longevity to something or, or because people have such different interests and, and different tastes that it gave depth to it. But, but as far as the industry goes, it's, it's much better to have every song sound the same, every album sound the same. And I mean, there's a ton of bands I can name that I'm friends with that I won't name. <laughs> but, you know, their, their first record went platinum and every song on the record sounded like that band. And you could tell they were, you know, and then the next record sounded like all those songs could have been on that last record. And that's the way the industry likes it is that everything's kind of boxed up nicely and the ribbon and the bow are put on nicely and it's all presented very consistently. So... When High came out, at the time, rock radio, it was too hard for radio in the daytime, which is really comical to think about at this point. But they, they wouldn't play it during the day, so people were playing it at night. And it started to do really well. 
And it went to like number eight in the active rock chart. So there was alternative chart. There was active rock was a more metal kind of a, a heavier stuff. So then, you know, our, our second record comes out and Do Right is our first single. And we had a couple other singles, but, but Do Right was our first single off the second record. And had they been swapped, you know, because that was alternative chart. Like, it had Do Right come out when High came out, we probably would have had twice as much success. And then had High come out when Do Right came out, which was two years or three years later, we would have had much more success with that. So it was really interesting to see how the dynamic was and how we were confusing more than anything if, if for, to the industry. And, for, like, we also, with the record label, you know, we kind of were signed to an imprint, which was Elton John's record label. And it was went through Polygram, and before we even put our record, it went through A and M Associated. And that's what, who we signed to. Then, before the record even came out, Polygram had bought that, disbanded A and M Associated, and then every single we ever put out was with a whole different group of people working on a label because the labels were changing so much then, and they were either getting eaten up by other larger labels or just being totally, you know, dissipated. So it was an interesting time, and you know, I've, I've watched some. My friend John Wozniak from Marcy Playground, he, we brought him into Annapolis, and he played, you know, he had had this song. I found out about them because I heard Almighty Senators had, on this um, compilation called Deep South 2, and I heard this song, um, Sex and Candy, and I was like, man, I'm going to learn this song. I don't learn a lot of songs, but I was like, this is just a cool song, and I played it up in Acme one night, and, and I called the guy up, and I was like, hey, the, your song's rad, you know, and, and got him to come and play in Armadillos in Annapolis. There was 10 people there to watch him. Well, they were signed... They ended up getting signed to EMI, and they put out the record, and they put out Poppies as their first single, and it went nowhere, and he thought it, it, shit was over. And then Columbia picked them up, and then a year and a half later, they put out Sex and Candy. It was the biggest, song, biggest single of the 90s. So it's in, there's no way to navigate that world or, or anticipate what that world is going to do. So it was, it was interesting. <laughs> you guys were progressive. I mean, it, that, yeah. to me, that's what it, that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of actually a lot of the listeners of this podcast come from a musical fan base that listens to progressive music. And yeah. I think that they would resonate with what you were doing because the album was kind of like a cool variety show in a yeah. way. I mean, it, both albums, yeah. uh, at least the ones that I was like really into. Was it two, it was with Jimmy Chicken Jack? Was it just the two main ones? Two right? major label records. Right. Yes. Two major label yeah. records. Exactly. Um, I mean, I'm excited for people to hear those just because I think it'll be a cool exploration. And as a drummer, I mean, Sipple, Mike Sipple is an awesome dude and a great drummer. Yeah. And then Jimmy... Uh, Jim is, Chaney was great, just yeah. Like, and what is he doing now? He's he lives out in L.A. and he's got a little studio out there and he rescues cats. And <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, but, you know, we all grew up listening to WHFS when it was in Annapolis, and it, their bumper sticker said progressive music, and it was progressive. That turned into alternative music. And then as, as HFS grew larger and moved to D.C., they became more homogenized. They got bought up by, I don't know, Clear Channel or somebody, CBS. Or, but growing up in the 80s, you know, pretty much in the 80s. I mean, I was born in six, late 60s, but growing up and uh, being around Annapolis, that record station, that radio station, we'd listen to, I worked at Paul Reed Smith Guitars when it was, you know, a pretty small factory, and there was all kinds of guys in this factory that were, I mean, Joe Goldsboro, who started Merkin Records in Baltimore, was working there at the sanding table right next to me, you know, and so they'd play the Cro-Mags, and then they'd play Bad Brains, and then they'd play the Grateful Dead, and then they'd play, I mean, it was just all over the place, and so we're, I mean, you guys probably felt the same way, you were influenced by that kind of 
all over the place kind of radio totally. station. Not, not not a lot of places around the country had stuff like that. I don't think. I thought HFS was like the at, at a time one of the best radio stations. Period. No I mean, question. That I've ever heard no traveling question. anywhere. They yeah. were they were some of the best, and they put on the one of the best festivals for years. Oh yeah. I mean that was obviously when they were. That's when they got a little bigger. bit more mainstream. Sure. But but still, even the bands they had at the time, I felt like. It was always pretty progressive as far as looking at a at a lineup and yep. seeing who was there. But absolutely. So this is this is a really interesting topic to me because I feel like now if you were doing the same project, it would be a totally different ball game. And not just because, well, mainly this is why I'm saying it. Back then, the labels really did have control over how the music was distributed and how it was put out. And radio was a huge thing yep. and people bought albums. Sure. And now obviously everybody Nobody knows buys it's, anything, it's, right? It's <laughs> not like that. But again, I, I see it personally as an, as a amazing opportunity and partially because I'm living in that world and I'm, I, I see it every day, but I, I think it's so crazy that back now, if you were doing the same thing, you could basically say, well, fuck you. I'm going to just put out my music myself and I can distribute it to everybody potentially that you can, you know, and I can just do it digitally. Like, yeah, that's what's changed about it. Yeah. And, and how do you feel about that now? Because I guess it's, it's just so intriguing to me because you started a label and you were on labels during this time when you didn't have social media, you didn't right. have websites. We were talking about this beforehand. It's like, is it weird now for you? And do you almost like, are you almost like, you know, kind of drawn more to the way it used to be and wish it was that way? Or, it, or, or have you ad, ad, adapted to the, the landscape? I don't now? know. It's hard to say. So, I mean, you got a picture that, you know, when I started Foul Records, I was doing cassette tapes and I would go around with a backpack to different music stores when they existed, skate shops and stuff like that. And I'd set up little displays and I'd ask if I could do it and they'd sell the tapes there. And then eventually, you know, labels would go around to different markets and go, hey, you know, who's this, who's that? They'd go to record stores and find out who was selling local records, and they'd go to Tower Records and, you know, Oceans 2 in Annapolis and say, who's, who do you sell the most records of locally? And it would always, they would always say us because I was in there every fucking week, you know, bringing in stuff, and we were playing a shit ton of shows. Before we got signed, we had sold 25,000 CDs on our own label, so which was huge, totally and it was a huge yeah. part of our story. So, you know, there was a, for me, there was a romanticism about... When you know when we, we had shows, you'd go to the eight by ten and you'd be flyering your, the clubs, and you'd run into other guys from other bands flyering the shows, and there were flyers everywhere, and people were physically doing this this stuff. So it really, it was based on how much physical energy you put into something. Now, I'm I'm clueless in a sense because it really comes into this online marketing, you know, it, it comes into um, just you know, these likes and shit like that. And and I don't, I think because I'm older, I don't give as much of a crap. I'm not, I'm not necessarily hungry to prove anything. You know, when, I, when you're in your 20s, you're like, fuck, I'm going to take on the world. And when you're in your 40s, you're like, the world is fun, like the way it is. That's awesome. <laughs> it, it seems like how you talk about DC hardcore and having its own pocket and you want it to put Annapolis on the map. Seattle had its grunge thing. Yep. Somewhere in California, somewhere in New York had its own thing that social media now just makes it, one, you don't have to hustle as hard because it's not, you don't have to actually walk around and hand out flyers and right. do all the legwork, but you can actually take that inner circle and you can grow it to the rest of the world. Because I see it with Matt's scene, Progressive Metal. It seems like a lot of these bands will band together in the same way yep. that when my when Jordan and I were playing around the Baltimore area, it was like everybody had a buddy. You know, it was like you found another band that you kind do of related to, yeah. and then you could always one books one and says, hey, put them on. 
and the yep. other does the other, and then you try to bring the whole scene together of these pairings. And it yeah. seems like where Matt's but, scene but comes from, just the whole world gets to come together. Yes, but but I still agree with that. I mean, we have my band has bands that we tour with that like we consider our brothers and sisters and so forth. Um, but I I, I want to go back for a second because I I do think what you said still does matter today. You know, the physical work of going sure. out and doing it and, like, what you put in is what you're going to get back. Yeah. I, I, st- I still very much so think that that applies now. It's just I think artists need to use different um, channels to do that, right? But but finding that authentic voice, which we've, which we've you know, talked about on the show plenty of times, but, like, it's – how did you – I think a lot of people nowadays, and maybe this is because of social media and because they're exposed to so many kinds of people and what they should look like and what they should sound like and what music they should make. How did you just stay true to what you believed in to where your uh, your sense of authenticity wasn't thrown off by the labels or the business? Well, I mean... Does that w- make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were just... I. I I don't. I don't think I ever had an alternative other than to be who I, who I am, and I like so much different kinds. I mean, I grew up listening to James Taylor and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Black Sabbath and the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and you know Jethro Tull. So you know, and then I'd listen to like fusion, like Return to Forever, and you know Mahavishnu Orchestra and all this crazy. It was all over the place. So I was like, well, I don't know why. You can't do that musically when you write, and I wouldn't say I'm, <laughs> I've ever done anything that broad of a spectrum. But it was just like, okay, here's a song. This is the feel. If it feels good, let's write it. And if it's honest, then let's fucking put it out, you know. And that was kind of how we always approached it, you know. And and I mean, and I also was, you know, because we were a band before websites and internet and everything, and and before MP3s. I got jaded as fuck when, I mean, a college student started Napster. I wanted to wring his fucking neck. I, I, th- I thought it was evil. I'd spent all my life trying to make music and, and make a living playing music and living in my car and fucking being broke. And then this kid just decided, well, all the years of work that you've done, I should be able to give out to everybody. And so there's, it would, it's, it's interesting because there's plus to those things. There's that exposure thing. Like the Grateful Dead always let people tape their shows and fucking everybody trade their tape. And I went to a ton of dead shows and I, I loved listening to that, that kind of stuff. So there was that half of, half of my mentality was like, this is a really cool thing. The other half of me was like, you're giving my shit away. <laughs> so it was an interesting time period to deal with all that as well. You know what I mean? And, and again, I think living through that, it was just like, well, you know, I've, I've watched people shape their music to a genre and it was always fleeting and so you know it just disappears fast so and and maybe some people would hear a song of ours and go well they were just doing that at this time and then this and and none of that stuff's memorable they were just as fleeting it's all somebody's opinion you know different now though yeah Yeah. so many bands so many artists out there are trying to fit what they do into something instead of just Doing what they do and having it develop its own pocket to I, live in. You I know? like to say it's that that um, hey, it's that <laughs> everybody every band's got some part some song that everybody yells hey in and I'm like shit the, okay yeah. that's the thing of today is he's got to go hey or hey uh, yeah and that's that the, group the gang sing vocal. yeah it's, it's totally funny it's really bad that <laughs> Jordan and I played in a band my brother and I we played in a band <laughs> for years that didn't have a singer and we only had 
one lyric in one song ever, and it went, hey, well, hey. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's, right. See, that <laughs> makes sense, because if you're going to have it, that's the hook. It works. <laughs> hey, and it, it worked brilliantly. You exactly. nailed it. I want to go back, because uh, the new project, which are the stuff you're going to be playing tonight from the Men the Hollow record, mm -hmm. and this is all acoustic. So it's funny. I, I was going to do just an acoustic record, just acoustic guitar and vocals, and, and I, I was on Facebook, and I saw the name Jim Wirt, and he produced Bring Your Own Stereo. He produced uh, Incubus Science, and he did right. you know, a bunch of people, Fiona Apple, Brian Setzer Orchestra. But it was the most fun making a record I ever had done. And Jim is a fucking old stoner, and he's not on Facebook or anything, but I saw somebody had posted his name. And so I hunted him down, and I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I just want to make an acoustic record. And he's like, I'm up in Cleveland. Come up. We'll make it. I was like, look, I got no money. <laughs> and he's like... You can, I'll never let anybody stay in the studio, but you could sleep in the fucking control room and you know, I'll just charge you for studio time. He's like, I love that, making that record and yeah, I love you, I miss you. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna come do it. And then once that happened, I started the, the idea of the crowdfunding thing, which my manager convinced me to do. And I didn't wanna do it because I didn't wanna ask for shit. I don't like being like charity. And he's like, it's not charity. He had to convince me. He's like, look, this is crowdfunding. They're prepaying for something. They're investing in something, and they get something out of it. So he convinced me. And I was like, all right. And I'm glad he did, because we raised a decent amount of money. And I then I was like, well, shit, I'm going to make these songs go to exactly where they should go. Instead of just doing acoustic guitar and vocal, I want to bring the production to where if I could have my dream you know, record, in, just like in the 90s, the late 90s, if I could have Jim produce it and Tom Lord Algae mix it, I'm going to make these songs the best they can be. So half of the songs were recorded live by the, all the guys from Jarflies, and we'd been playing them for years. And then the other half of the songs were songs that I'd just written, and I got uh, Tom Bell from uh, Ginger Wolf to play lap steel, and this guy Dominic Fragman to play drums. And I asked Jim if he'd play bass. So we alternated those songs on the record. But the other thing about this record was, I saw Tom Lord Algie, he was mixing a record for the band live, and he came down to see Jimmy Chicken Shack at, at uh, Ramshead Live, and we always do one show a year there in December. And we were drinking whiskey, and he's like, man, when are you gonna let me mix another record? And he, what's amazing about Tom is he has thousands of platinum records in his house that he mixed. And uh, his the first record he mixed was uh, Back in the High Life by Steve Winwood. And, it won a Grammy. So the guy's done so much shit. But he would play our record for like bands when they come in. And like the guys from Fuel or Live or all these other bands would be like, saw Tom Lord Algae and he played me, you know, he put on high right away. He's like, <laughs> listen to this shit. And so he really loved our music. And he was like, oh, just let me mix some stuff. And I was like, I can't afford you. And he's like, I'll mix your shit. You know, you just come down. So, so at the time, I was like, fuck, I'm going to get Jim to produce this. And I called up Tom and I said, remember our whiskey talk? And he's like, come down whenever you want. I'll mix it for you. So it, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, it ended up being something where I got to do, and then I got um, Bob Ludwig to master it, which is he's like the guy. So it went from this little idea of just an acoustic record just to document these songs that I loved for years to me being able to make the, my favorite record I've ever made. And it really, there was no intention to it. I didn't care if it was cool. None of it's cool, actually. It's it's all and it goes all over the place. But there's some <laughs> stuff that sounds like country on it, and I would have never done that before because Chicken Shack was still an alternative kind of a band. So there was a certain genre that it had to fit in, even if it went a little all over the place. Songs that didn't fit, I'd play with Jarflies because it was a more jammy band. And but these were like, fuck it, I'm gonna make this record and just be 
the most honest record I can make, and it really has turned out to be my favorite record I've ever made because of that that lack of, you know, it needs to be something like or fit in somewhere kind of thing. It sounds like it really comes full circle now. So if you take it all the way back to starting the label or uh, ten times big, um, I was thinking about you were playing acoustic as an acoustic duo with a percussion player. Yeah, I guess right. Um, you know and. You, you brought in all your friends. This is the same thing with the label. You're trying to just bring everybody up. So everybody come together because it just seems like maybe you're the catalyst that just bring the spark that brings everyone together. And now you actually got to do it with, you know, and, and it went from, I remember watching the, uh, the crowdfunding page and seeing you playing acoustic. Oh, right. And I was thinking like, oh, and I remember what I, growing up, I watched, or I guess it was probably later than on, when YouTube came about, you know, I was watching old videos. Um, of you guys just like sitting on car, you know, like blankets playing acoustic, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's great that you can, that you've done all of these projects and you get to come full circle in 20 years the next day and you're doing it still with all of your friends. Yeah, dude, I, I, I I'm blessed <laughs> beyond, you know, it's like the coolest thing that, that could happen, honestly. <laughs> and you have some good friends too that now you're for well, real. Uh, you've had good friends for a long time, but yeah, names like Tom Lord Algie, I'm sure our listeners will be pretty stoked about. It's it's that's pretty, he's a badass. He's I, pretty, yeah, I'm yeah. psyched that he liked my music. <laughs> so so I, I have a different question for you actually. Um, and you mentioned when you were hustling the cassettes and you were you know basically selling by yourself. How did you even learn how to sell? And I would imagine, and, and even before we started recording this today we were talking about how you have to go for the magazine you're essentially the fundraiser right you yeah, have to go, go around sell and, ads, yeah. and sell ads and raise x amount of dollars to get the magazine out quarterly as you were saying so how did you develop those skills and and do you use typical negotiating skills or things like that i mean is there any or is it just hey man this is what i got it's good art you know the labels like the original crowdfunding, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so twenty-five thousand records. That's crowdfunding. That's at least for for your crowd right, and yeah. for your friends and people to put stuff out. You were crowdfunding. Well, so and that was over a few years. And it, you know, we would we started we started to sell them for five bucks a piece too. And we played everywhere we could. I mean, we played. We would rent, we'd find somebody who had a flatbed truck and we'd put it bring out to. Um, to RFK while the Grateful Dead or while Pink Floyd was playing, and we'd play in the park a lot until the police came and shut us down, and then he'd walk away, and we'd start playing again. So we we always found an interesting way to, you know, it, it, in the market, they would always say, oh, you're playing the market too much. I'm like, the fuck we are. Like, we could play here. We play all the time. The more we play, the better it is for us. Maybe it's not better for your club because you think you're going to draw less, but inevitably they realized it was better. So we would have clubs say, oh, you can't play here if, you, if you're playing – in Baltimore, you know, three months ahead of time, I'm like, fuck that. We'll find somebody to let us play. And then we would fill up rooms every, no matter when we played. So they, they let us do it. But what you, had, you had asked a question. Oh, oh, the selling thing. So yeah, I think it's, I'm not a shy person. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm just, out, I get up and go out and do it. You know what I mean? And so, you know, if I had, I had our cassette and I knew a buddy who owned uh, Evolve Board Shop. It was a skate shop on Main Street. And so I was just like, hey, man. Care if I put some CDs on your counter and, you know, if people buy them, they, they could just stick the money in the box. And he's like, sure, dude, fuck, why not? And then I'd go up to the record stores and I'd just introduce myself and be like, hey, you know, I've got this record. I see you have a local section. You know, here, here's our record. So it was really about just not being shy. You just got to fucking push. You got to be a pusher. And I was, you know, people will say that I, for three years, I had a phone attached to my, my head and a bong in my hand and, 
<laughs> and a guitar, you know, next to me. And that's pretty much how I lived. I'd wake up and I'd just fucking nonstop just go at it. And I had like uh, little day planners that were filled with fucking numbers and cards. And I, I had so many business cards. And so I just pushed at it, you know. And same thing with booking shows. I'd just get on the phone and, um, yeah, can we get a show? Well, send us a demo, all right? And then we, you know, how, do you, how, how am I going to make this stand out to them? So I'd send a demo with a chick, couple chicken feathers in it. So when they open the envelope, a couple feathers would flop out, and they go, "What the fuck is this?" And then it would, but it would stick in their head. And and then when we just got signed later, that was the name of our album was pushing the Salmonella envelope. And and we would send them out to radio stations. The label itself, the major label, was like, "This is fucking brilliant." So I still have people go, "I remember the first time I got your record. I was working at a radio station in San Diego, and feathers came out." And I was like, and I still found a couple feathers a couple years later. You know, it's, it's great though. That's and that's the kind of shit that that. I think is awesome to hear because again, it goes back to that. What can we do that's creative and authentic that and no one else out. is doing that will, that yeah. will be memorable. And that's not like, that doesn't really fuck with any boundaries or any, PETA like, might it, be like mad it's not gonna, now, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, maybe but it, now, but, but, no, like, but, but you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings with that stuff. It's not like, right. And now we get it. Well, all you, those years of not being able to say salmonella, uh, right? Growing <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah. So, but the, then you know now. And the picture. Great. So the picture was of me with a little Manila envelope that you would always buy weed out of, like if you went to Chillum in D.C. or something, <laughs> and you buy a little nickel bag for five bucks, and it was a little Manila envelope. So that was the idea. I was a pusher, and I and literally I was pushing our music. I mean, it was, that was what that was the drugs I was dealing with was our tunes and our shows. The OG music hustler. <laughs> so, okay, but let's, let's talk about some of the other projects because along with music, as we said, you, you have the magazine, which is a quarterly magazine, which would be great to hear more about your, your vision for that. But then tied to that is also the art gallery. So like those things seem to be linked in some way. I mean, you even mentioned that with the cover of your magazine, you wanted to get certain artists on the cover. Sure. You said your wife took photos like in the, in the front, uh, is it the front part it's or the back? In, part? Inside kind of cover, a, yeah. Th this one is a flip magazine, so there's two covers, but yeah. Well, so so that's a big project. So yeah, it. I I did a one magazine with this person I knew years ago, and I just did one issue and found out, you know, this just isn't. We're not going to be able to work together, but I found. After doing that, I was like, well, all right, well, the, you know, I mean, I'd sold most of the ads for that, and I'd come up with most of the, con the concepts for the stories to that because I lived in town, and I knew all the people that were doing cool shit. So after doing the one issue, it was, I, and I put a lot of my time and soul into it. I was like, man, it sucks. I'm not going to be doing this. And then somebody was like, well, do, keep doing it. So I was like, all right, why not? I'll start, I'll start my own. So Upstart Annapolis, is, it's up.st.art. Upper West Street is the arts district in Annapolis, so that's why I named it that. And the whole idea is just, you know, come up with people that are doing cool stuff. And instead of, like, one thing I always hated about certain papers, like City Paper, they do a review of a CD, and they just pan it. They pan a local record. And, and it's like, well, fuck, if you don't like it, why write anything about it? Why be a dick about it? Why be this hipster asshole and write something rude about somebody when they're trying to do something good? So I'll never review something. The whole thing is exalting what our town, not fucking burying it. And so, you know, the, more than a review of like a restaurant, I'd rather find out what motivates, just kind of like what your, your podcast is about, is what motivates people to do what they do. And that's what the stories are based on. 
So, you know, we have an editor. She, she works with all the writers and we say, this is kind of the angle we want you to go at. Here's the story. Send out a couple photographers and, you know, I got to go hustle ads. And because I know a lot of people in Annapolis and a lot of business owners, it was, you know, easy for me to approach them because I knew them and they trusted that if I said I was going to do something, I'm going to actually deliver it and, you know, make it happen. So I think that, that selling mentality or that pushing mentality, some, it can be a huge mountain for some people and personalities, but it becomes a molehill the minute you, just like anything you conquer in life is like, it all seems like such a big endeavor until you do it. And then you're like, oh shit, I can do this. <laughs> what, what I like about what, what, and this seems to be a common thread for everything you've done is it's never just kind of the bare minimum. Um, y- even the magazine, the texture of it, that like when you pick it up and feel it, it's heavy the what would you call it it's it's like a texturized cover is there a name for that they call like, it a uv finish it's but it's okay. it's almost it's like, like a sandpaper sand yeah right and, and now th- now uh, i can't take credit for it. this is uh, there was a magazine out in california that that first magazine i worked on he had worked with that magazine so it was that it had that texture and i was like this is fucking cool it was a different shape but you know i wanted to get as close as i could with a square without wasting a lot of um, money but the idea of making something of quality it makes people want to keep it these stories are worth people keeping. Well, exactly, you know? and and that was the thing. It, yes, maybe maybe it wasn't you know your invention per se, right. but you had a vision for it to be more than just a monthly magazine. And you even talked about that before we started recording as well. It's like it's a quarterly magazine. Yeah. The purpose of it, or or at least your vision for it, is to be something that people retain that yeah. they don't throw away, which is a amazing selling point for you know raising any money or, or selling ads because you can tell these businesses these people aren't throwing away it's not a, a throw and go yeah, it's a perpetual ad for them exactly exactly so i mean i i think that that is kind of brilliant as well because whether you knew it or not at the time whether you even considered it that way that's an amazing selling point you know and and, and it's all part of this bigger vision of well, creating something cool and and the, i mean I, I think the other element of selling yourself or selling something so going in and bringing a record into a, a store if you believe in it, it's not hard to sell. And, and, and so I, I know I believe in the content of the magazine, so I know I can go in and go, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is going to be worth it. I'm going to make sure it gets out into people's eyes. They're going to see your stuff. But it, it's believing it. You, know, you can't sell shit you don't believe in. And that's why I only do things that I, you know, my dad died when I, I was 24. He was 47. I'm 40. I'll be 49 this year. But I remember when he died, and I thought, man, he worked his ass off for his very short life. And and he's, he's he's just gone. And so I'm not gonna fucking do that. I'm not gonna work a job. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I do, and not care about money, because I could fucking die at, at 25 or 29. Who knows? It's and about the legacy, right? Well, it was more about just uh, no. I, I don't even know if it's I, I ever think about legacy more than I think about. I want to have fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to have a fucking well, good time. That's you know? awesome. It, but, but, <laughs> but that's what you are leaving behind. You're leaving <laughs> behind a trail of music with your words and with with your your passion in it. You're leaving behind these magazines, which are also your creations. So whether you know it or whether it's been, uh, you know, part of your drive or not, it is something. Like if you did die tomorrow, it wouldn't just be like, oh, he's he's gone, and where you know. Where? Where is everything? It's like you can find you in all of this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. I guess that's. I definitely am. I'm leaving breadcrumbs, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. Yeah, totally. We've <laughs> talked about death uh, on a it's couple the, episodes here. It's the greatest motivator to do shit that feels good for you. Yeah. I think what's nice for you is that 
you've conquered the fear that I think most people walk around carrying, and that's of rejection. So you believe in your shit. It's easy for you to say, hey, record store, would you consider selling this record? If they say no, it's not going to like crumble your knowing that this is valuable stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely say I've never given a shit about what anybody thinks. So that's a, a helpful personality trait when trying to push your stuff. But like I've, I've worked with, you know, I do art projects with kids and different like mentoring kind of things. And there, I, I always say there's two rules to being an artist or a musician. And I think they, they apply to really being anything. And is one is embrace your mistakes because nobody fucks up like you. So that's what makes you special because my mistakes are what I've made my living off of. And everybody else's mistakes is what they've possibly made a creative living on. So there's two two rules. Embrace your mistakes and then exploit them like they were intended. Mm -hmm. Because if you put them out there with confidence, then people fucking feel confident about it. And, I mean, it, it, also someone, uh, this guy, Zay Louis, he's a sax player from South America. And I remember one time I was talking about something. I was making a record. And he's like, it's not your job to worry about what this record is. He said, it's your job to make this record. It's everybody else's job to worry about it. And then you can decide if you want to let that impact you or not. And I was like, that's fucking great because, yeah, I don't care what anybody thinks about this product. I, I just want to make it, get it out there, and move on. And if people like it, great. And if people don't, great, because there's plenty of people who will and there's plenty of people who won't. I, you know, just won't let it impact who I am or, and it definitely won't impact me doing something in the future, you know, so... So we talked about you knowing that Jimmy's Chicken Shack would work. Was there a moment that you could look back to where that was validated? Um, I mean, it, it, it was validated the whole, all the way through when we made our record for $600 with Straz, and it was a, it was a really good record, and people loved it. And we, when we played our first shows, and people were just like, fuck you guys, I can't believe you've been together for four months or six months. That's bullshit. They, uh, some of our friends were pissed. They were like, you fuck, I've had this band for three years and you have a band that's six years, I mean, six months and you have this whole killer album and you're playing a bunch of shows. So it always got validated at some point. But more than anything, I think it was every single time we played, I was, I just fucking threw my whole being into it and it was a blast and the the adrenaline that I got from it was phenomenal. And I mean, we had a fucked up band. Like, well, the, the original band, all of us <laughs> were totally fucked up, 20-year-old dudes. <laughs> so, so I mean, I remember times where we play a show and we fucking kill a show at like the 8x10 or down at Fells Point. And then our bass player and our guitar player, Che and Jim, would get in a fight and I'd have to pull the car over and they'd get out in the street in Baltimore in the middle of the night and start punching each other. <laughs> And then I'd calm them down. I'd be like, You're, we're going to get arrested. The cops are here to get yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to get arrested. Just get in the fucking car. Let's go back to Annapolis. And then we'd drive three more blocks, and they'd get into it again. And I'd pull over, and they'd get out of the car and fight more. And I'm, I'm like, how could you fight after us having this amazing show? We just sold a shit ton of things, and we, had, we sold the club out. So it was a funny time, but every single time, no matter what, was validated what I thought. You know what I mean? And to think... Uh, you know, the, all that journey seemed so long at the time, but after three years, we were signed to a label, and I think it was pretty quick, inevitably. I mean, I know bands that have been together for forever, you know, that didn't get as lucky as we did with that, so. Was, you, obviously, you look different than you looked 
during the Jimmy Chicken Shack. Yeah, I had about 50 less pounds. Well, I'm <laughs> talking more about, like, I mean, everybody <laughs> knew who you were because of your dreadlocks. Yeah, because of, dreads, yeah. At least locally. But even then, it's like not many people that were on MTV at the time, not many of the bands that were playing <laughs> the festivals and stuff. Like, you were very noticeable. Right. Was that, was that who you were? And then it became a thing, or was that a also like a very like uh, conscious decision to stand out? Well, so I mean, I had long curly hair, and everybody had long hair, and you know, the '90s it was like you know everybody wore fucking Doc Martens and had long hair. But I had curly hair, and it would it would knot up fast if I like went in the water or something. And at one point, I probably saw a picture of uh, Perry Farrell with blonde dreads. And I was like, he's a fucking maniac. I love it. You know, there's something about him. And, and I was always into reggae music. And so I was like, I, I think at one point I, I might have just thought, you know what? Like, all, a big problem, like, with 10 times big was people would say that I, I had this androgynous thing. And I'd literally go to a grocery store and people would say, can I get you anything else, ma'am? And I'd be like, fuck. Because, you know, I probably didn't hit puberty until I was like 30. So I looked like a fucking woman, like I was skinny and had, you know, these fucking feminine features in my face. So I'm like, I need to fucking ugly myself up because pretty people make shitty music. And I didn't want, you know, I was like, I want to, I want ugly people make really good music. (laughs) That's kind of true. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just dread my hair and fuck it. Just, I didn't care at the point. I was just like, this will be easier. And I'm, I'm just... It was partially not caring and partially an idea that, you know, you won't miss this. Well, I'm sure the I'm sure the labels or management were aware of that. They took that. They were probably like, yeah, the looks great. Yeah, oh, the dreads yeah, are yeah. awesome. Uh, he know. looks like a rock star. All that shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind well, of funny. There's a lot of artists that are doing that now in their own ways. Whether it, you know, obviously Slipknot has their thing. You know, right. bands like that and the bands that, that paint their faces and wear the masks. But there's also these other personas. I was just curious if that was like. A, a persona for you where like you, you knew what it was and you were putting it on and you were this character. And then when you go home at night, you're still you, but you're a different version of you. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's partially it, like Kurt Cobain. He had a fucking green cardigan and his hair looked like he had fucking perpetual bedhead. You know, part of that was him being a heroin addict, but that was his persona. And that was something that was memorable about his, who he was, you know? Um, Anybody that, like, Henry Rollins had his, you know, everybody's got their thing, you know, and I grew up and playing and loving Landis from Almighty Senators, and I mean, he's he's a drummer who stood up and played a pink drum set that looked like it had a pussy for a, a drum head, <laughs> and he's amazing singer. Like, just so the listeners know, he literally would stand... Play... Play drums, kick, standing Play drums, yeah. standing up, and sing. And left-handed, I think. And uh, I... Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, it but, was... I'd never seen anybody do that before. Fucking great. And the thing was, that band, I mean, they had these elements of Parliament Funkadelic, but because it was funky music, but it was such catchy shit. And their shows were absolutely out of this fucking world. They would have huge, like, double life-size dummies that they would throw around the crowd and puppets, and they'd have projection shit going on. This is in, you know, the late 80s, and we were just fucking mind-blown by their what they did, and it and it shaped me. And you know, he'd have like fucking pink dreads popping out of his the front of his head, like like antennae or something. And there was, I think, all of the Baltimore had such a funky, crazy, creepy, seedy scene, 
that it, it just totally affected me. You know, bands like Cloaca and Wad, Women of Destruction, and all these bands had, um, you know, uh, what was it, False Face Society? All these bands had something going on that was just like, damn, like that, I, I, you would always remember it. And I think that was part of what shaped who we were. And, and you know, Che had dreads, and all of us had, looked like we were fucking 90s kids, you know, we were little grunge kids or whatever, you know? You seemed cool to us then, for sure. <laughs> right. um, so I do want to touch on fin art because we did oh, yeah. mention that. But uh, to transition there, I know a lot of our listeners are interested in uh, pivoting in one's life, which you had to do um, after you know putting Jimmy's Chicken Shack out through major labels. So what was that process like for you to, I guess, assess or maybe reassess uh, where do I go next? Or do I keep pushing this thing or not? Well, I mean, with I always did artwork since I was a kid, and that was always my. I always thought I was going to be more of an artist, and then music kind of took over. And then, I guess when I turned forty was when my daughter was born, and that's when I was like, I'm not going to tour anymore. I don't want to be this stranger in the house when I come home. I want my daughter to know who I am. I and I also want to be there for every birthday, and all these things are only going to happen once. And by the time I was forty, I was already sick of me. I'd already had enough fun for like five lifetimes to to be bored with pretty much any experience that I could enhance myself with, whatever it was, no matter how crazy it was, I'd already <laughs> kind of done it. So I was like, but I've never done this. And I don't think anything's going to be as rewarding as this. So then it was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be touring. And, and so I've got to figure out, you know, I, maybe I got to start selling some more paintings. And I would sell paintings here and there because fans would like some of the artwork. And I always designed all the art the albums and stuff like that. And, and Charles, who is the owner of FinArt, I just kind of am, am one of the people that are a part of that cooperative. But uh, he, you know, I got him to paint a couple album covers that I designed with him. And so it was just a natural thing. It was like, okay, I'm not going to get a job. I haven't had a job in 20 some years. <laughs> I'm like, it's time to figure out how to fucking hustle. So I just started making paintings. And this is where social media comes in and really helps because I had, you know, fans that were on Facebook, I could post up a painting and be like, oh, I'm selling this. And somebody would be like, hey, I want to buy it. And then somebody else would be like, I want to buy it too. And all right, well, bid on that shit. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's how I kind of started selling artwork. And then, again, I, I remember going into an art gallery, Annapolis Collection Gallery, and Catherine Burke is kind of this stoic character. She, most art gallery people are fairly dry and a bit standoffish, uh, and for good reason. And but I remember talking to her and, you know, her kind of not giving a shit what I was saying. And at one point, I you know, went back in with my daughter. I, she's in a stroll. And I was like, oh, I wanted to show you. I, 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 I paint, too. And she's like, oh, this is kind of funny. And it was, you know, it was, there was a puns to it. I was doing this thing, um, Barnyard Master. So I did Mozart, which was Mozart as up cow and on Mozart sheet music. And so she kind of got it and kind of did, but she took a couple paintings in and they sold. And then she, she started researching who I was and she's like, you're a rock star. And I'm like, no, I'm not a fucking rock star. I play me. I'm a musician. <laughs> I, I have done that thing, but I'm not a rock star. So, but, but it was, again, it was just kind of natural progression. I've got to figure out something to do. And that was just one of the things. <laughs> it was art. When you wake up every day now, I would imagine, aside from being a dad uh, and a husband, it, what is the main project? What's the thing that you're stoked about working on every day? 
I, I'm not stoked about anything half the time. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think... I, that's real. I mean... Well, no, I mean, I, I, so I realized that at a certain point that, that doing nothing is more vital than doing something. So it's like they say the silence between the notes. The, 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 mu- the music is really the silence between the notes, and it is. It's that space between those notes that give people that room in a song to actually physically and mentally get into music. When you hear somebody say, get, oh, I can get into this song, it's because the musicians have left enough space to get into that music, and you can hear really mature music has space to it, and really immature local music is all filled up, and everybody wants to play as much fills and fill it up with all guitars, and, you know, it's, so... Same thing with, with just for me, living is that there's times where I won't play guitar for fucking weeks. If I don't have a gig, I don't pick up my guitar and just strum because I'm fucking romantically involved with music. I'm, I don't give a fuck. And then I, out of nowhere, for some reason, I'll write a song in five minutes or maybe a song over a period of a couple months, and it'll, it'll be one of my favorite songs I've ever written. And it, so I think it's letting myself have nothing that is what lets me create something. So, and I know guys who have to play music, and I know guys who have to paint, and they have to do it every day. I don't have to do anything, and I really don't wake up with a plan ever, <laughs> unless I've got to like distribute magazine because I distribute the magazine too. So, so you know, in the beginning of the week, I'm like, all right, I got to do some social media posts for my advertisers. That'll take me, a, you know, a couple hours here and there. But I'm, I'm going to do this if I feel compelled to do it. And I'm going to. Maybe drive magazines around today, or maybe I'm gonna sit on the couch and fucking binge watch something, and then maybe I'll go to the art gallery and work on a piece for a little bit. You know, maybe I'll, if everybody leaves the house, I'll play guitar. I, you know, I, I, but there's no, I don't, I've never had an agenda really yet, or at least I got to a point where I stopped worrying about like what I need to do and just started living, kind of. <laughs> where does that wisdom come from? Because even, you know, when, uh, your record came out in 1997, like, a lot of it went over my head. And, and oh, another way that uh, the appreciation for the work deepens as I get older is that uh, I'm able to deepen as a human being so I can experience your work uh, with more depth. And it just seems like you're one of those people that at some deeper level, like, got it, for lack of a better term. You just seem... Uh, and it's hard to to express what I'm trying to say, uh, but you just you have this wisdom to you, like you talk about real shit. Um, I can relate with the with the silence. I do these drum circle programs often, and that's a huge metaphor I talk on. Is like the note that you can play is a rest, right. right? And and I think it's so cool that you see that you apply it to your life. Um, you know, you were hiking or uh, camping the past couple weeks. Like, I see yeah, you yeah. doing that often. So, you know, where you live, like, on the water, it just seems like you have this appreciation of simplicity, of just being. Yeah. Uh, well, where does that come from? Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to be a bad, <laughs> bad influence. I think I could credit drugs for that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, 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 you know, I, I've done drugs in my life, and... I think this country, the, they try to steer you away from mind-expanding drugs. The Doors, the name, the band, The Doors, was The Doors of Perception. And so, like the song, um, what is it? Uh, this is not hell. I've, I've opened my doors of perception and can't get them shut. Now I feel fucked for free every day. It was real. I was feeling that. I wrote that song in five minutes. But, but the whole idea is just, 
all right, I've at some point, and maybe I would have come to these things without drugs, but I can't say that because I did them. And but I think over a period of living and experiencing stuff and getting older and just you know using my head you come to some realizations. Like, I used to stress about money because I don't make a shit ton of money. I have never been focused on making money, but I still have bills. So I would freak out about it, and then I realized, well, shit, I'm, I freak out about it and it still works out. So then I was like, I'm going to try an experiment with myself. I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm not going to fucking worry about it because worrying is the, use, the worst use of your imagination, and I was badly using my imagination. So I stopped worrying about it, and then... Ended up going, shit, somehow it, it works out. I mean, I will figure this out. And if I don't, the world isn't going to end. And if, it, if I, and if the world does end, none of that shit's going to matter anyway. So, I mean, I, I guess it's a, I don't know. It, it, you just come to those things and you go, what's important? And, and watching like my father die at a young age or watching any of my friends die or anybody in my family, I, I, it always reminds me, fuck, man, this is all so short. Just do what you fucking want to do because it, it, uh, what's a, a blues traveler song? It won't mean a thing in 100 years. <laughs> it's like if nobody's going to know or give a shit. And if, if we're alive, I, you know, I went to 12 years of Catholic school and there was always this, this whole idea of this. And, and I love the name of um, Depeche Mode's record, Some Great Reward. And I always thought, what a brilliant name for a record because we are, we're, we're, this carrot is dangled in front of us that there's some great reward after all this. And fuck that. Like, why does it have to be you live for heaven to, and to avoid hell? What if heaven is now and it's your one physical experience and hell is when you die and you are in a perpetual state of regret that you didn't fucking live your life and, and know that it was heaven at the time? So that's kind of just something I think through school and people that I love and family and friends and experiences, you just kind of go, oh, this is how I feel now. <laughs> That's incredible, man. <laughs> and, like, it clearly resonated. When I think <laughs> back of, like, what's the one Jimmy Haha moment that sticks out for me, uh, and you mentioned the song This Is Not Hell, uh, which was, I, I don't think it was a single on the record, no, necessarily. No, yeah. no. Uh, it is full of lyrics, uh, so it's wordy yeah. for a song. And I remember, I think it was 1999, the Raven Stadium, HF Festival, you guys were playing main stage early in the afternoon. There were tens of thousands of people singing every lyric to that song. Yeah, it's cool, right? Yeah, yeah to, it's to, badass. To like a very wordy, <laughs> wordy song, song yeah. that wasn't a single. And you know what's awesome is the Washington Post did a review of the record, and, and the reviewer said... Called it bad poetry. <laughs> I was like, "Fuck yeah!" You know, I was like, "Awesome!" It is bad poetry, but it was funny because I wrote that in my kitchen in five minutes. I don't know why. I don't know how it happened. I credited it to probably drugs, but I was probably baked at the time. But it happened so quick, and I don't. I didn't write it. I don't. I don't. I mean, it, it wrote itself. You know what I mean? You channel, and that's I think what artists and musicians do. You you open up a channel in yourself, and you let. Because the music's all out there. It's all like right now. There's a song floating around our heads, and it's you choose to paint it. You choose to pick the color and which parts to, where to put the paint. And so, that's all music is, and that's all art is. And I just was able to capture it and mark those moments in time. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking back at it and going, "How the fuck did I write that?" You know what I mean? I don't know where that came from, but I like it kind of thing. Well, so. I, it seems like you're not the type of person who walks around with a lot of self judgment. So you allow yourself 
to naturally express in that way. It's, it's pretty amazing. So we need to wrap up. I know you have a show tonight. Sure. What are you looking forward to, like, tonight? When you're on stage and you have your guitar and you got the people in front of you, like, what is it about that, that that's going to light you up? What do you want out of it? I don't know. It's funny because every time now before any gig I have, it's, it's, I don't know if it's an anxiety or if it's just lethargy. Excitement. Oh, no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's definitely the opposite of excitement. Really? It's almost <laughs> lethargy. It's like, fuck, do I really got to drive to Baltimore and play a show? I mean, I seriously feel this way with any, with, when I play Chicken Shack shows, all of them. And I tell my wife, Oh, fuck, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to hang out here. And I, I literally feel that way all the way up until I get on stage. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the worst thing now is, you know, back when I was younger, I was like, I had this energy and I was like psyched and I'd get to the gig and I'd set up the merch booth and I'd hang out there and I'd pedal shit and I'd talk to everybody and smoke some weed and I'd be out there. And now I'm like, fuck, can't I just like transport myself right to playing? So, yeah, I'm just going to try to kill time until I start to play. And then... It, it, I'm, I'm f perfect, and it's fun. And after I play, that adrenaline helps. And more than anything, I hope somebody listens to it. And because I'm playing acoustic guitar, and there's, I'm, I'm being kind of sandwiched by two full bands. I just hope somebody listens and and maybe goes, oh wow, I I, I hear a lyric. I, I, something resonated with me. Something translated to me that worked. You're going to be the space between the noise tonight. Exactly, I am. I'm the silence <laughs> between the notes. Well done, man. <laughs> if the uh, if the show, if like you were playing at two o'clock, does that make a difference? No, it, I, it's not how late it is. No. Like oh, I'm excited in the morning because I remember I was probably 23 when I started to like I was taking a shit at three o'clock and I'd be like, <laughs> oh, we're playing at ten. That's too oh, right. late. Like I'm ready for bed now. Yeah. Like, can't we just play at five? No, it doesn't matter what time I play. It's just, it's it's just interesting. And it, this is something that's probably been over the past maybe six seven years that where I'm just like fuck. I don't even care. Like I just don't. <laughs> I got to be honest. I just don't care. I guess I, I I'm at a place where I don't really have anything to prove, and I don't feel like I'm on some upward mobility movement with my music. It's and it's not about it anymore. It's purely about just doing it. And and so it's an interesting, it's I don't know, it's an interesting feeling now to be like, I don't give a fuck, <laughs> but but I totally love it. So I, it's kind of a weird, I don't know, it's weird. <laughs> it's cool, and I love that you're totally yourself in the response. I know uh, your music is something that has never left me, and it's something that I'll continuously come back to. Uh, but it wasn't until I started following you on social media a couple years ago that like you as a person like re-entered you know my my awareness and like I said as a child or as a teenager and a young adult I always looked up to you as an entrepreneur as a musician etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but now I see how much your family means to you and like it just further confirms that I was right about you all along. All right on. Well, yeah, you might be wrong. I don't know. I could prove, <laughs> I could disprove this tonight. None of, none of this is real. <laughs> it's all an illusion. Yeah. Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, uh, I don't know, man. It's life is just so fucking weird and everybody is so crazy and everybody's living their own movie. Dude, Jimmy Haha's in my apartment right now. Life <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> no, what's cool is I'm in your apartment right now for me. So, so I'm living a movie right here and it's fun for me. You know what I mean? Like that's what it's it's interesting, you know, like just to think about every one of us is in our heads and our own vision is all we see and it's like 
I mean, the Pink Floyd song, All You Touch and All You See is All Your Life Will Ever Be. That whole, you know, that song, that lyric is, resonates so much to me every day thinking about it. And it's like, well, shit, this is really a fun fucking ride. And as, if there's ever an epitaph, I don't know if I want to be buried. I don't really kind of want to be buried. Maybe plant a tree on me or something. Or, but if there ever was a stone with an epitaph, I just wanted to say, I had fun. <laughs> I think that's a good epitaph. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Cool. I think that's a great place to close here. Awesome. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for being here. This right is on. an absolute pleasure for all of us. Appreciate it. Um, I know there's like a dozen things that you could push to our audience right now. So uh, demonstrate demonstrate that skill you got. <laughs> My salesmanship? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't bring any merch to shows anymore. I've got boxes of T-shirts for, for Men the Hollowed that I just don't care enough to put in the car. So they're sitting in a fucking studio house. Um, yeah, I mean, you could mend the hollow has a web. It's mend the hollow. It sounds Hawaiian, but it's not. It's a M E N D T H E hollow H O L L O W, and uh, we have a website. It's dot com. I rarely update it. <laughs> but, yeah, you're the um, best. But there's Super stuff. Honest. There's stuff on um, Bandcamp. The record's on Bandcamp, so you can download that. And then there's I have physical copies, but you would have to hunt me down on Facebook. Um, and then FinArt has, um, yeah, all this stuff is on Facebook, basically. That's kind of where I reside. And we'll, we'll get links from you and stuff, too, yeah. to provide for, for the listeners yeah, as fin, well. Fin so art is, check it out. Yeah, FinArt is on West Street in Annapolis, and we keep artist hours. So you could go by there in the middle of a day. That's every, every business is open, and we're not. And then you could go by at, you know, Friday night at 10 o'clock, and we're in there drinking and making artwork. So it's a cool spot. There's 11 different artists, and somebody's always working in there when somebody's in there. Um, Upstart Annapolis has a upstart-annapolis.com, the website, and you can do a virtual flip book through all the magazines. There's an archives part, so you can see all the back issues. And then what else? JimmyHaha.com. Oh, JimmyHaha.com has some J-I-M-I. of J-I-M-I. Yeah, J-I-M-I, like Jimi Hendrix. Yep. Uh, and that, that, that has my artwork on it, and I rarely update that, too, but it has a bunch of stuff from the past, so I'm pretty lazy when it comes to updating websites. <laughs> <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> Awesome, man. Awesome. Um, so as we take this out, again, we want to thank you, Jimmy. Uh, we want to thank all of you for listening. We appreciate your attention, as always. We have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash chocolate croissants. Uh, honestly, week to week, it keeps getting better. The, the conversations that are started and continued, uh, it's honestly inspiring for all of us to pay attention. Uh, we see everything uh, that goes down in there. So we appreciate and applaud all of you for taking advantage of that. Uh, again, you can subscribe to this podcast uh, in your podcast app of choice. Uh, that makes sure it's downloaded every Monday morning into your podcast app of choice. Uh, if you're so kind, you can rate and review uh, Chocolate Croissants on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the fuck they're calling it this week. Uh, we hope you all have a great week. We will be back here next Monday morning uh, with another super inspiring guest. Matt is looking at me. I don't know if he wants to say something before... I uh, say my words at the very end, but... Let's tell everybody who the guest is going to be for next week. Please do. Well, going off of you talking about PRS guitars, it made me think of my guitar player, Mark Holcomb, who will be our guest nice. next week. So, awesome. Yeah, so there we go. That should be fun. Yeah, the only thing I know about him, besides <coughs> seeing him live a few times, is that he's a fan of Seguros. And he's Jeff Holcomb's brother. So I'm very much looking forward to that. <laughs> All right, guys, again, we hope you have a great week. We will see you here next week uh, and in the Facebook group this week. 
And until then, bye-bye. <laughs>